Father, that you would meet us in this place this morning. Father, even now we pray that you would open our hearts and our ears, Father, and our minds to receive your word this morning. I pray that you would speak through me, give me words to speak, Father, and may this be a meaningful time together, that we may walk away having a better knowledge of who you are, Father, to uh, make you known in this world and more convinced of your great love for us, that we might reflect that great love back to you and back onto the world around us. Amen. And this week we are continuing our series titled Searching for Sophia. Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. And so really what this series is all about is that we are asking God, pleading with God, desperately asking with God that he would provide us his mind, his wisdom, as we, as we search and we struggle at times through some very challenging issues regarding the Christian faith. Before I get too far into this morning's mission, I do want to mention uh, that there's a slight change to our schedule. Next week, we know that it is Valentine's Day weekend, so men, get prepared. All right? Get those, get those credit cards out for the flowers and whatnot. But we also know, uh, some of you may know, that Friday night, Fifty Shades of Grey comes out into the theaters. Many of you may know what this book is about or this movie is about. I've never read it or really I know very little about it. I know the gen- gen- generic version of it. And um, we live in a culture that is obsessed with this thing. And uh, we live in a culture that has already um, purchased more pre-sale tickets for this movie than any other movie in Hollywood history. And so obviously there's something about this movie that is enticing and interesting to the society around us and probably within us as well. And so instead of talking about why does God allow suffering next week, and I will get to that, don't worry, all right? We're going to talk about biblical sexuality next week. And so if uh, you have young ones with you and you don't want them to be a part of this conversation, I'll include you. This is your fair warning to, um, to consider uh, who hears this message next week. Not that it will be overly graphic, but um, just to give you a fair warning that this series is changing a little bit. But today, here are the questions that I will address. What happens when we die? What is heaven like? When is Jesus going to return? What is the rapture all about? How are we supposed to interpret Revelation? I've taken all these questions and I've boiled them down into one phrase, are we in the end times? And my first thought as I think about this topic is, why do you hate me so much? Why do you guys hate me that... uh, that you ask these questions, right? Because really, at the end of the day, I'm going to try to condense an entire semester's-long graduate course into the next 40 minutes or so. And uh, so we're, we're going to be drinking from the eschatological fire hose this morning, so I hope you guys are ready for that. Uh, you know, I don't know what it is about eschatology, but, um, which is the study of the end times, by the way, or last things, but this issue, more than so many others, has the power to divide believers and and create division within the christian church i don't know what it is about it i still have like ptsd from conversations i've had about this topic with with christians in the past i think this issue because it's so close to satan's heart i mean after all that deals with his final ruin and destruction right he's got to have some interest in this i think he uses this issue to divide us i think he takes this issue and he divides christians and so journey with me into my senior year of college, 
in my eschatological seminar. The first day of class, we are asked to introduce ourselves and tell us what our plans after graduation are. So student one stands up and he says, Hi, my name is, you know, so-and-so. I plan to go to Dallas Theological Seminary after I graduate because my dad went there and that's where I plan to continue my studies. Student two stands up. Ah, so so you're one of them. Student one speaks up again. What What do you mean, one of them? Student two, you know, a premillennial dispensationalist. Student one, you know, that sounds like an insult. But yeah, I'm a premillennial dispensationalist. That's the only valid interpretation in scripture. Student two chimes in. Are you kidding me? Valid interpretation? Man, that's nowhere in scripture. You swallowed the Dallas pill way before you were born. That's not a valid interpretation. It's darn near heretical. Can't believe you believe that crap. I suppose you believe in the Left Behind books as well. Student one chimes back in. What, so I'm supposing that you're telling me that you're what, an amillennialist? Oh, please don't tell me that you're a postmillennialist. And the conversation goes on and on and on from there. Did anybody understand a word I just said? <laughs> yeah. You know, eventually my professor stepped up. He calmed them down and convinced them that they were like the blind leading the blind. He told them to be quiet and sit down and that we continue on with the discussion. But you know, at the end of the day, if there is a doctrinal issue that is going to divide the Christian faith, and we are doing a great disservice to the Christian faith because no doctrine is worthy of separating our unity with each other. And so if you went to Karen or PBU or PBS or whatever it was called way back in the day, you may not agree with everything that I'm going to say this morning, and that's okay. I can deal with that. I can live with that. But my hope this morning, by the end of this message, is that it will be abundantly clear that in all the eschatological conversations we have, there is one thing that must anchor us. There is one thing that must unite us, and that is that we are not called to draw maps of how the end is going to take place. We're not called to make timelines of how it's all going to happen, but we are called to be prepared. That if there's anything that Scripture teaches us, it is to be prepared. Preparation, not detail, is the Bible's first and main suggestion for any and all end-time study. You guys get that? So whatever I have to say about how it's going to happen, this is what I want you to remember at the end of this conversation. Be prepared. Get ready. You know, this basic principle of preparation eluded me for a very long time. When I first became a Christian, I began attending a youth group at a local church, and, and on the wall in this youth room, there was a map detailing exactly how the end of the world was going to happen. So there I am, an impressionable young Christian, reading this map of how the world is going to end. You know how the moon was going to turn to blood and how there are going to be all these plagues and famine and pestilence and the world's going to be this, this horrible place? And how there would be one world dictator to rise up and to unite the nations, to proclaim himself God over the earth, and, and how he would create a financial institution based on microchips and barcodes and all these other things? And then I went home that night, and I turned on the TV, and, and there was this guy speaking. His name was Jack Van Impey, and he had a show, Jack Van Impey Presents. And his premise was to look over all the newspapers in the world and tell us how all the end-time prophecies were being fulfilled through, you know, fish kills in rural China and avalanches in Russia. And then riding this craze in 1995, the Left Behind series began, which convinced the Western world that there was only really one valid interpretation 
for figuring out how the end times were to take place, and that being that the great tribulation and war would overrun the world and all God's faithful would vanish in an instant, that we would be raptured like the blink of an eye. We would all disappear. And all those who were not ready for that rapture, for the disappearing, for God calling his faithful back to him, would be left to endure and survive the apocalypse on their own. But the craze didn't really end there, right? The end times craze. January 1st, 1999 came around, and the euro was established. Everyone said that the Antichrist would soon rise up because the establishment of a single currency that spanned several nations was developed. And then December 31st, 1999 came around, and everyone was convinced that the world was going to end, and there was going to be some, you know, uh, meltdown of all the computers in the world, and somehow as the clock flipped over into the new millennium, the world was going to end. And then 2008, Barack Obama took office, and everyone kept saying that the Antichrist had now risen to power. And then the Oprah show ended, and everyone said that she was the Antichrist, and she was leaving to develop some, you know, unified brainwashing television network. And then December 21st, 2012 came around, and everyone thought that the world was going to end because the Mayan calendar was coming to an end, or it was starting over. You know, and as I matured and as I studied the scripture, I came to be convinced that all of these are completely missing the point. Because at the heart of all popular media, popular Christian interpretation of Scripture was this basic tenet that the world was doomed for destruction. That God was going to wipe out this world and he had a new celestial home waiting for us that he was going to come down, swoop up all his faithful and bring them away to some planet or some new celestial body, spiritual body off beyond the clouds. And of course our songs reinforce this. DC Talk was a popular Christian band back in the 90s. They came out with a song titled, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. A man and wife asleep in bed, the song goes. She hears a voice, she hears a noise and turns her head, he's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men are walking up a hill, one disappears, one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. This text is taken out of Matthew 24, which I'll talk about in just a few minutes. It describes this time when this rapture is to take place and two a uh, husband and wife are, are lying in bed and, and the, the, the wife hears a noise and she turns around and the husband has vanished. He's been raptured. He's been taken to go to that otherworldly planet somewhere off among the clouds. The classic hymn, How Great Thou Art, says, When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and what? Take me home. Off beyond the clouds somewhere as we are raptured. You know, these and so many others tell us that our final home is somewhere other than here. That our final home is in some celestial body up among the clouds. It's in some paradise waiting for us. And when Jesus returns, we'll all be swept up to live there, away from here, forever and ever, to be with him. You know, that interpretation might be valid if God's creation is inherently evil and God's intent is to do away with it all to wash it clean and to do away with it all and and release us from the burden of this world. But if you were to look through Scripture, what you're going to find is exactly the opposite of that. That God is not intent on destroying this world so that we can vanish it someday and go to some other place. He is creating this world so that he would renew this creation, redeem this creation, liberate this creation, so that this place would be our final home as his heaven and our earth become one. Right, Genesis tells us that God creates a good creation, 
but that his creation was subject to frustration by the choice of humanity to rebel against our creator. But the hope, Paul says in Romans 8.21, that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Right? Creation is going to be liberated. The point is that when humans are liberated, when humans are redeemed, when we are restored, so will all of creation be restored, redeemed, and liberated. And I, for one, therefore, must reject any end times interpretation of Scripture that tells us that this will not be our final home, that we vanish and we go off to some celestial paradise somewhere. And so try to understand why God doesn't just do away with the earth and transplant us to some new spiritual home. It's because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth as two interlocking dimensions within space and within time so that God's dimension of heaven and our dimension of earth were interlocking and infused. They were one. But when sin entered the world, however, God's realm and humanity's realm were separated. But it wasn't separated in the sense where, you know, heaven went upward and earth stayed down below. But it was separated in the way that, like, a new dimension was created. And so the other day, my son Ethan asked me, Daddy, where is heaven? And my response is, well, reach out your hand. Because heaven is north, south, east, and west. It's in front of you and behind you. It's up and it's down, right? If you could take God's dimension and and pull back the curtains of the air that we breathe, you would be able to enter into heaven, God's space, God's time, God's reality, his sphere of living. Heaven is all around us, in other words. It's the dimension that God lives in. Heaven and earth are two overlapping dimensions of space and time no longer fused together. Right? So how many people think that if we could just hop on a rocket ship and take it and blast off into space, we can go how many millions of light years out into space, we would eventually land into heaven. That heaven is this faraway country somewhere. But in all the language that the Bible uses about heaven being upward and the earth being downward, it's using Greek and Jewish metaphor, a classic Greek and Jewish metaphor to describe not direction, but placement. It's kind of like a person who is graduating from the 10th grade to the 11th grade. They're moving up in placement, but it's not like the 10th graders are now going to start studying on the second floor of the school where they were once studying on the first floor. Heaven is a matter of placement, not of direction. So heaven is not up there, but it is all around. You know, when I was younger, I used to hear people talk about how they would, you know, set empty chairs at the dinner table for Jesus. Or how if their sick and loved ones were, were um, in bed, that they would put an empty chair next to them so that Jesus could be present with them. And I was like, man, that's such a stupid idea. Don't you know that Jesus is way out there and you have to come down? It's like, this, it doesn't make sense. But if you start believing and thinking that heaven is really this other dimension rather than this place off among the clouds, then not only does that become valid, but it kind of com- becomes beautiful in a lot of ways. To set a place for Jesus, an intentional place for Jesus in our lives. See, God's intent on restoring and redeeming the world is the fusing of his realm with our realm, the bringing together of the dimensions of heaven and earth would once again become one. The mystery, Paul tells us, which has been accomplished in Jesus Christ, but to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under the authority of Jesus Christ. 
And so if the current world of space and time is thoroughly bad, then escaping it could be, in theory, a valid interpretation and a valid hope. But if you were to read the New Testament, you would find that that is exactly the sort of agnosticism that the New Testament writers were fighting against, not that they were promoting. It will be redeemed when heaven and earth are once again fused together. That is God's ultimate plan, that this earth, broken as it is, would be restored and redeemed, and his heaven would be fused with our earth, and they would once again be one. If you look through Revelation 21 and 22, right, you're going to find that the new heavens and the new earth, it seems odd to us to read Revelation 21 and 22 because we have this, this idea that heaven is way out there in the distance, and, and that is where we're going when we die and when Christ returns but it's not, right? 21 describes how heaven and earth are becoming one and that this earth recreated as it is, God's intent will be made new and this creation will be our home. Look at Revelation 21 too. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Right, so first of all, notice that heaven comes to earth. Not that we escape earth to go to heaven, It continues, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. God is now dwelling among men. His realm is now with our realm. He will live with them, right? God lives with us. God comes to us to remake, to restore, to renew his good creation. Jumping down to verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia. That's roughly basically from here, Philadelphia, to Denver, Colorado, by the way. He he measured that it was 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The dwelling place of God is what? It's one giant cube. Now, to the careful reader, that may not uh, seem significant to the average reader, but to the careful reader, you might know that in 1 Kings 6... That is the exact same shape as the Holy of Holies in the temple. That God's dwelling place on earth is also a cube. And so what is the new heavens and the new earth going to be like? It's going to be one giant cube where God's manifest presence is here among his people. Jumping down even further to 22.1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of this great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Really what Revelation is doing is paraphrasing Genesis 1 and 2. When God's realm and our realm were one, When God lived among his people and walked among his people, when they saw God face to face and they reigned alongside God, that is what Revelation is describing. The renewed creation of what once was will be in the future. And the early Christians, for the early Christians, Jesus' resurrection from the dead launched God's new creation upon this broken, old, rotting creation. That with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, began the fulfillment of God's new heaven and new earth. With the resurrection, Jesus tore open the curtain to reveal God's dimension so that it could begin to bleed in and restore and renew this world. 
And Paul tells us that whoever has the Spirit of God within them has the first fruits of new creation, that God's new creation, his new heaven, his realm has already began to infiltrate us. So the answer to the question, are we in the end times, for the biblical author is, of course we're in the end times. And we've been in the end times since Jesus rose from the dead. Because the end is about the fusing of heaven and earth together, and that happened when Jesus rose from the dead. That's when it began. And so keep that picture in mind. Keep that paradigm of heaven and earth in mind. I want to continue by painting a broad picture of how I understand from Scripture the last days to take place. Whether the last days be the day that you die or the last days be the day that Christ returns, what will this all look like? For those of you who, by the way, are interested in the topic of hell and you weren't with us last week, you can find that message on our website under the media tab. That is certainly one reality of what it might look like. But for the moment, let's consider you a believer in Jesus Christ. As horrible as it may sound, you leave this place. And you drive your car up Levittown Parkway. And while you're driving, you get into a car accident. And though the aid is rushed to you, they are not able to revive you and you die. What happens? What generically is your experience? Well, to begin, Jesus told us in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now this scene seems to contradict everything I just said. That Jesus is coming back to take us. He's preparing a place for us to go be with him forever. But when Jesus is describing this place, the term for many rooms, he uses this Greek word monai. It doesn't mean a dwelling place like your house of residence, like the place that you live, the place where you reside every single day, the place where you sleep at night and eat. It's not the place where you stay long term. It's a lodging house. It's a hotel. It's a place where you go to be reprieved and to find rest, to continue on with the journey. So several years ago, Emily and I were going to make the 21-hour drive from Philadelphia to the Twin Cities of Minnesota. The problem was that we left at 9 p.m. at night. And we were young, you're like, we can, we can drive through the night, that's not a problem, right? We'll just, we'll just switch off taking naps, it's fine. But of course, you know, we both couldn't sleep for the first five hours, and so we get to Pittsburgh, and we're like, we cannot do this anymore, we just can't go any further. And so what do we do? We find the, the cheapest, closest hotel that we possibly can, and we stay the night. But as nice as that hotel was, you know, as hard as the decision was to make for us to not reside there for the rest of our lives, that was the decision we ultimately made, to go home to our house, where we reside, where we live where our stuff is, where we eat, where our friends are, where we reside, that is where we were going, right? So in the morning, when we were rested, when we were prepared, we packed our things up, we got into our car, and we continued on with the journey. You know, both John and Paul are emphatic that resurrection is the final destiny of God's people. Bodily resurrection is the final destiny of God's people. And if God's people die before the coming Christ 
then we go to be with him until that resurrection takes place. And we will receive imperishable bodies that are no longer prone to decay and to sin and to death. And so what Jesus is saying is that between death and resurrection, there is a place prepared, a place of light and peace and rest, a place of reprieve from the horrors of this earthly life, a place where we can go to wait with Jesus until the final return, until he creates heaven and earth and God's realm because, becomes our realm. And this is why in Luke 23, Jesus tells us that the repentant thief, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise, he says. And this is why in Philippians 1, Paul thought it better to depart and be with Christ, which is far better than to stay in chains and suffer. And this is why Paul could write the Corinthians and say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay, so what about if you are still alive when Jesus returns? What will that be like? And this is where the contention usually happens, where the differing opinions happen. And this is where the conversations on the rapture and the millennium and the tribulation and the apocalypse and all of this tends to take place. And my contention is that the way the biblical authors describe this event is not the descending of Jesus from the clouds, but the appearing of Jesus from his earth, heavenly dimension. Most people, when they want to discuss the climactic event, turn to one of two passages, either 1 Thessalonians 4 or Matthew 24. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about Matthew 24 because I honestly don't think it actually addresses the topic that we're talking about today. And I'll get to that in more detail in just a minute. So 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive... And our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so the Thessalonians are obviously grieving the death of some of their loved ones. And they're wondering what's going to take place. What's, what, what is their existence like right now? And what's going to happen when Jesus returns? And so they're presented with this theology that Paul describes. But remember that the biblical cosmology does not hold heaven upward and earth below, but rather two dimensions, God's realm and our realm, separated. So Paul writes that we who are still alive when Christ appears will go to meet him in the air. But how would you describe the crossing of a dimension? How, how, how would you try to illustrate for somebody what happens when Christ pulls open the curtains of the air and walks through it to appear? We can't understand the complexities of God's space and time. We can't hardly understand the complexities of our space and time. There's this classic Greek and Jewish principle, remember, not of upstairs and downstairs, though that is the language used, but of placement, not of direction. And so he means when Christ appears, he says that we will be gathered to him. 
That when Christ appears, we who are alive will be gathered to him. And the reason I know this is because the Greek clearly states this, even if the English does not. The word Paul uses for the coming of the Lord in verse 15 is parousia. It means royal appearing. It's a word very well known in Paul's day. It describes when the Caesar, who would be coming back from a military campaign, or if you were to come into your town, for instance, to pay your little rural village a visit, it describes how the Caesar, the emperor of all of Rome, would come, and as he is on the foothill still outside of the city, all of the royal citizens, all the leading citizens and the people of the town would run out to the Caesar to meet him. And they they would celebrate joyfully the military campaign that he had just won. Or they would celebrate joyfully that the king of all of the towns decided to come and visit your little town. And they would be full of joy and they would be full of exuberance and they would go out to meet him. Apensis is the word that Paul uses. They would go out to meet him. As in meeting the Lord in the air. Same word is used. But the citizens didn't go out to meet the Caesar so that they could pitch tents and begin to live out in the countryside somewhere. The citizens went out to meet the Caesar to bring him back with joyful exuberance as they ushered him back into his realm. And so in other words, we mustn't press this non-biblical image of Jesus swooping down and taking us all to be raptured up into the clouds somewhere. The point is that Jesus will reign on the earth, and at his royal appearing, the faithful will be gathered to him to escort him back to his good creation. And Jesus in Matthew 25 basically says with the parable of the ten virgins the exact same thing. That there are ten virgins who are waiting for the coming groom, because in their day, a bride and a groom, after they got engaged, the groom would go off to, to settle his affairs. And when he was ready to come back and get married, the groom would then return at an unpronounced time. And when the bridesmaids noticed that the groom was out on the hillside, they would run out to meet him to usher him back to his wedding day. That is how Jesus describes the second coming. You see, the New Testament, the second coming is not the point when Jesus will snatch us away to live somewhere else, but the time when he will begin to recreate this broken world. And he will bring heaven and bring earth together. And so to conclude, what is the point of it all? On the back of your bulletins this morning, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis. It says this, The doctrine of the second coming has failed. So far as we are concerned, if it does not make us realize that at every moment of every year in our lives, the questions, what if this present were the world's last night, is equally relevant. All C.S. Lewis is trying to say that is, man, you can talk about as much eschatology as you want. You can develop any timeline and theory as you want. You can have any conversation. But if you do not ask the question, what if today is the last day? What if tonight is the last night? Then it all is meaningless. It's all meaningless if you are not prepared in other words. I mentioned that a lot of people read Matthew 24 to refer to the end of the world. And Jesus telling us what it would happen, uh, what would it be like when it takes place. When I was in that youth room as a kid and I saw that map on the wall, everything on that map was taken out of Matthew 24. But my conviction is, as I believe Jesus' conviction was, by the way, 
that he's not speaking of the end of the world, but he's rather speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, and in particular the temple in A.D. 70. I know this because Jesus says this when concluding his section. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And when did that generation pass away? About 1,900 years ago. But this does not mean that all of these conversations don't have something to say to us today. If anyone is interested in talking about that chapter in greater detail, I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. The point of that passage, as is so clearly stated in verse 36 and following, is to be prepared. Be prepared. Because the reality is that at any moment, Christ could appear. He could usher in his new heaven and his new earth. He could begin the recreation. And so be prepared. And if that is the case, then we must be prepared. The entire chapter preceding this, chapter 25, is one long dialogue, one parable after another about how important being prepared is. Right, Because when the manager returns, he's going to look at the people that he has entrusted to do his work, and he's going to ask how well they did it, and he's going to judge them accordingly. And when the groom comes to retrieve his bride, and he is ushered back by the bridesmaids to his wedding day, the doors to the wedding banquet are going to be shut, and everybody who is not inside the wedding banquet will be left out. And then when the shepherd comes to retrieve his sheep... He's going to look upon his flock and he's going to separate the goats from the sheep. Judgment is going to take place, so be prepared. Peter concluded his second letter by saying, The day of the Lord will be like a thief, will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be disclosed. Everything is going to be revealed. Everything is going to be laid bare before the Lord. Every hidden lie and secret sin is going to be laid bare before the rightful judge. Your whole life will be disclosed and open, and all that is not fit for God's good creation is going to be purged. He continues on by saying, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? This is the point, my friends. Because the end is on the horizon, what type of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy lives, godly lives, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Man, this is what it's about. In keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth when God's realm will once again be our realm, when we will walk among God and he will see him face to face, we will rule with him. And guys, I don't know when this is going to happen, but I do know that preparation is the key to any and all eschatological conversations. I'm going to invite Kate up. We're going to reflect on this for a little bit. Here's the thing, guys. This is a lot to take in. Uh, Like I said, we were going to drink from a fire hose this morning. It's a semester-long conversation that should have been had, and we did it in about 40 minutes. But here's the thing. Any and all conversation on eschatological issues needs to end with this one sole truth. Preparation is the key. Get yourself ready because it's going to happen. And the end may not take place for us to see 
the coming and the appearing of the Lord Jesus. But there is going to come a day when you are going to die. And that's a harsh reality, and I get that. There's coming a day when this life is going to end. And so what will your response be? When you're standing before God and He is asking you who you are, are you going to say, man, I am the king of my castle. I reign on my throne. This is how I'm going to live my life. And God, I don't really care what you've done to me to release me because there's really nothing in my life that I needed forgiving of anyway, so I don't care what you've done. Or are you going to fall at his feet and say, God, I am a sinner. Extend your mercy upon me. And by what you've accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ, extend your mercy upon me. May his blood continue to overflow me, Father, and cover me. And purge me of the things that are not right, Father, so that I might enter into your paradise. You have a choice this morning to either be prepared, to consider what that final day might be like. You can humble yourself and ask for forgiveness for the sins that you've committed and say, God, I know that I am a sinner. Extend your mercy, please, Father. And then you can look upon the cross and know that it has been forgiven. And when you do that, Paul says, as I have already mentioned, that the first fruit of God's new world, that his realm, his dimension will begin in you. And you will be a new creation. You will be made new.